Good morning, everybody. Try that again. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Glad that you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, and uh, uh, you're going to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. It's in the white pages of your Bible. You probably never read it before. I'm not sure why you would have wanted to read it up to this point. And anyways, uh, this is going to be interesting. Last weekend, I asked uh, basically a prayer request for you guys to be praying for us. We celebrated a milestone in our family. Our son, Braden, got married to my new daughter, Olivia, and I'll show you a picture. There's the newlyweds right there. That was pretty awesome. Asked you to pray because uh, apparently, I don't know why, but I have a reputation for being somewhat emotional. And so you were praying, <laughs> I don't know why, um, you were praying that I would be able to make it through. So apparently there were less than a thousand tears, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 to a thousand, somewhere in there. And apparently my voice cracked nine times. I know that because there was actually a betting pool happening with some of our staff people who were over there. Um, and there was also more tender Jesus moments than I could count. So the reason I say thank you for that is because when we arrived here at Christ the King, Braden was six. It's just hard to wrap my head around that. Braden was six, McKenna was four. They're both getting married this summer. And I just realized we have really, I mean, our family has basically grown up in front of you guys. And you have walked with us through all of the ups and the downs and the backs and the forths. And so uh, as we celebrated that milestone it made me just unbelievably grateful for a church family that's been, that's been not only patient but very loving and allowed Laurel and I to be parents while at the same time um, pastoring a church. And so thank you for your investment in our family. I appreciate that. And if it feels like I'm stalling right now, it is because Genesis 6 is just weird. There's no other word for it. Some of you read it this week and you were like emailing me like going, what in the world are you going to do with this? And I don't know. Um, I should have delegated this to Pastor Lem. Um, <laughs> Or to Pastor Todd, because he's the closest thing we have around here to a Nephilim. And you're going to find out what that is in just a few minutes. Okay, so let's review to catch everybody up so that you're up to speed in case you missed a couple weeks because it is summertime. And I don't blame you for taking uh, a break during the summer. In fact, I think you should because some of you need to just chill a little bit. It would probably be good for you, but let's review and catch up. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything and he declares that it's all good. Genesis chapter 2, God creates a man and a woman, hosts a naked wedding. At the naked wedding, God basically strikes a template for relationship between man and a woman, and that template has not changed. In Genesis chapter 3, God opens a door to man's free will. And stuff like choice and decision and consequences and boundaries come flying into the story. There's a conversation with a snake who lies and deceives, and he's still lying and he's still deceiving. And we learned that week, you need to be careful. Don't talk to snakes. Basically, that's the lesson from that one. And then Adam and Eve, utilizing the same choice that God gives as a gift, moving in the wrong direction. But we're thankful for that gift of choice because some of you used that gift uh, to be able to decide whether or not you were going to show up today, to move closer to God. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve moved further away from God, but we see God in the face of sin doing an amazing thing. He chooses to cover his creation with grace, and out of an unbelievably evil situation, we actually see good emerge. In Genesis chapter 4, last weekend, Pastor Lem unpacked for you sibling rivalry, hotly debated sacrifices, murder, and once again, we even see God having grace to cover a guy named Cain who took the life of his own brother. And we see a plan starting to emerge. 
God's relentless plan of love that's always covering and always reaching and always pursuing. And then if you read Genesis chapter 5, there's a genealogy that covers Adam and Eve and all of their kids. And we run into people like Kenan and Enosh and Methuselah and Enoch. And the list goes on and on and on, all the way up to a guy by the name of Noah. And then in Genesis chapter 6, in the first 10 verses, God throws a bomb into the middle of the story. And pastors have been ducking and weaving this passage for centuries because nobody really knows what it means. And that's why I'm completely freaked out this morning. I went home last, you know what my, my, so I'm not a big Twitter person, but I tweeted this on the weekend. I said, preaching from Genesis 6, hashtag Jesus help me. And every pastor I know was like, 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 like that one. You're like, what in the world's in Genesis 6? Here it comes, Genesis 6 verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Holy smokes. Apparently we got a different version of touched by an angel going on right here. And that is just, that's weird, okay? I told parents, I told you, I warned you, I warned you, put your kids in childcare. Because if you don't put your kids in childcare after this week, you're going to have your kids going... Mommy and daddy, what's angel sex on the way home? And that's your fault, not mine, because I warned you, okay? So just say it. So big obvious question. Who are the little s sons of God? That's the big debate that's been going on for centuries. Well, let me clarify. It's not the big s son of God. That would be Jesus all the way through the New Testament. This is a completely different category. I put in your outline four theories on the identity of the little s sons of God. Hotly debated, here we go through it. First theory is that they're actually angels, okay? The reason for this is because the same phrase that's used to describe angels is also translated sons of God to other places in the Bible. Job chapter 1 verse 6, one day the angels, translated sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Job chapter 2 verse 1, on another day, the angels, translated sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. So two different occasions, the phrase sons of God is used in the context of angels. Now there's a bit of a problem with that particular theory, and that, that, that happens in, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. Jesus is teaching, Jesus is preaching, and he throws a little angel trivia out in the midst of his teaching. And he basically says this, at the resurrection... People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven who apparently don't get married. So that rules out angels marrying human beings. But according to the context, it could be angels. Stick with me, okay? Theory number two is that the little s sons of God were actually godly men from the line of Seth, okay? So in scripture, people who believe in God are faithful to God, follow God, obedient to God, they're often referred to as the sons or the daughters of God. If you ever come forward for prayer sometime and, and we're praying about an identity issue in your soul, I will often refer, if you're a lady, to you as a daughter of the Most High God. Or if you're a guy, I'll refer to you as a son of the Most High God because I want you to know who you are in the eyes of Christ. It's important. So this theory says this is no big deal. There's no angel sex going on here. This is just godly guys from the line of Seth who are connecting with beautiful women, okay? Just guys from the line of Seth. You're just like, who is Seth? <laughs> Seth was born to Adam and Eve after Abel died, okay? So he's another one of the original sons. No problem here. 
But there's more theories. The third theory is that the little s sons of God are actually fallen angels from pre-creation. Okay, now I want you to notice something. In theory, in theory number one, I read you two passages from the book of Job. And what's interesting is when these quote-unquote angels show up, they're accompanied by somebody. Did anybody else notice the person who showed up with them? Satan. Oh. Oh. Now, just because Satan shows up, every time he shows up, I want to make sure that we know this. I love the book of Job for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I love more than anything is because it teaches me something. Satan has to report into Jesus. I thought somebody would say amen to that, but apparently, nope, nothing there. No, I'm going to say it again. I love the fact that Satan has to report into Jesus. Amen. So make sure you know this, okay? Satan's on a leash. He's subservient to the God of creation. He's not the boss. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Somebody say amen. amen. We need to know that. Week number one, we talked about a brief history of the universe. Okay, Pride pushed Lucifer and his minions. Okay, Not the minions you're picturing, the little yellow ones with the one eye. That's a different movie. Okay, all right? When pride pushed Lucifer and his minions out of heaven, if you want to read about the original satanic mutiny, it's the result. You can find it in Job chapter 38, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah chapter 14. But this is what happens if you stick with the context, okay? God strikes the template of a godly relationship between a man and a woman, and then he says anything. Anything outside of that relational construct is not blessed by God, including intermarrying with angels. God actually talked about this in other parts of the Bible, believe it or not. Okay, listen to this. We're going to fast forward all the way almost to the end of the book, and we're going to read some verses from the book of Jude. Okay, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. So Jesus, mother, Mary, father, God the Almighty, not in a weird way, just so we're clear. Jude, mother, Mary, father, Joseph. Okay, and he writes a book in the Bible. It's got one chapter. And in that book, all of a sudden, there's, this, there's these interesting verses that say this. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he's kept in darkness bound with eternal everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality, perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Those two verses there, Jude, verses 6 and 7, it indicates that evil, rebellious angels actually perverted God's idea of pure sexuality and broke God's template for the sake of pure evil. Now, that's going to come very, very important. And that's why it's important when you're studying Scripture not to just get stuck in one chapter, but to look at the whole counsel of God. That's why it's important for you to read your Bible. Because then Peter starts talking about it. Second Peter chapter 2 said this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains in darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, if you want to know what's coming right next in the story, it's the story of Noah. Next week, we're going to do a kid's story for adults. It's more than just a guy with a beard and a boat and a bird, okay? And you should probably show up, but put your kids in childcare. just saying. 
If he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. So you've got two different contexts. In the New Testament, where Old Testament references are made that include fallen angels, man's evil choices, Sodom and Gomorrah, all of that evil, and Noah. And they're all in the same place at the same time. So theory number three is that the sons of God are actually fallen angels. And Genesis 6 is not a romantic touched by an angel love story. It's actually a nightmare violation of God's intent for humanity and sexuality. Are you still with me? Okay, one more to go. One more theory. That's the little s sons of God are actually just demon-possessed evil men who are doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Okay, they use their power of choice to choose evil. They serve Satan in the lust of the eyes because of what's going to happen and what is going to be explained in what's happening within that culture. There's all kinds of issues with that one, but it's plausible within the context. And now I'm going to do something that I don't often do because I want you to think for yourself, form your own opinions, study scripture on your own. So I am actually going to share my opinion. So here's my opinion about the theories of who in the world are the little f sons of God. I don't know. I don't know, but because of Jude chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 2, I would lean ever so slightly towards theory number 3 while saying, I don't know, and neither do you, because I wasn't there, and neither were you. Let's go back to the Bible, because it's going to get weirder. God, you should pray for me right now. Okay, so. Verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be numbered about 120 years. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. It's a tough truth, but it's important. I need you to know this. I need to know this every single day. God's grace is incredible, and it's going to keep showing up in the story over and over and over again. But even God's grace has limits. Even God's grace has limits. Why? Because grace is love, and for love to really be love, it also has to have an element of justice. So there's a time limit here, which means this. Every one of us has our days numbered by the God who created all of this and initiated all of this and painted all of this and created grace. He, he created a number of days for each one of us to live, and at the end of those days, here's the deal. You're either going to meet God in his judgment or you're going to meet him in his grace. As your pastor, your friend, and your brother, choose grace. Take a knee before that day. Follow Jesus with all of your heart, with everything in you. Attach yourself to that love and that grace so that you're spared from that judgment. Today is that day of reckoning. Think about it. Process it. Okay, here comes even more crazy stuff. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. <laughs> You're like, what is the Nephilim? Every time I say that, I don't know why, but I think heffalumps and woozles from the Winnie the Pooh thing. I don't know. But 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the little s sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the hearers of old, men of renown. Okay, every time we do an Ask Me Anything weekend, when you guys text in live questions, every single time we get questions about the Nephilim. So somebody's reading Genesis 6, okay? And I haven't answered them on purpose because I knew we were going to do this series, and so we're going to answer as much as we can about the Nephilim right now. So here's what we know and what we don't know about the Nephilim, okay? We know that they actually show up before the flood, and then they reappear after the flood. So we find them here, but then we also find them in Numbers chapter 13. Stick with me. In the book of Numbers, there's this amazing story. God says to the people of Israel, I'm going to give you a promised land. They show up on the edge of the promised land. They send a bunch of spies in to check out. And the spies come back and they say, this is not going to go well for us at all. You should see the size of the people that are living in that land. This is craziness. Read it for yourself. The Bible says, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. So here's what we know. We know that they're warriors with a reputation. We know that their origins, if you connect to theory number three, came from a co-mingling that was not of God's design. We know that their physical size is huge. We know that eventually their name becomes synonymous with the word giant. So just because you hear Nephilim before the flood and after the flood doesn't mean they were great swimmers and survived. It just means after the flood, that name became synonymous with the word giant. And and it gets tracked all the way through the genealogy and you end up finding them represented with a guy that shows up later on in the story by the name of Goliath. Remember that? See all the connections? Okay. They become synonymous with this picture of giant evil. It's hard to, to miss, but Nephilim literally translated means fallen one. That's a clue. Now, before you jump to conclusions and go, but just hold on a second, Grant, how can they be fallen and evil and big and nasty and all the rest of it when the Bible actually says that, that they were heroes and men of renown? Oh, here we come. Let me ask you a question. Are the heroes of a broken culture still heroes? I was downtown last week. I overheard a conversation between two young men. I'm going to be very careful with this. But their commentary went like this. One young man speaking to the other young man. He said, yeah, man, I love that blank. And I'm not going to fill in that blank because the word he used is offensive to every one of my African-American brothers and sisters. And that makes it offensive to me because we're family. Yeah, man, I love that blank. He's my hero. He knows how to put blanks in their place. And I'm not going to use that word either because it's offensive to every one of the daughters of God that are sitting in the room right now. Don't let your imagination run too wild. He's my cool blankety blank blank hero. So let me ask a question. Are the heroes of a broken culture really still heroes? The people that you choose to call hero actually say a lot about you and the condition of your soul. 
Because your heroes are the people that you put up on a pedestal and you aspire to be like them, to, to live the same way that they live. So my question is, if you make a mental list of your heroes right now, what does that actually say about the condition of your soul? I mean, if your hero is a foul-mouthed thug who preys on the weaknesses of people, what does that actually make you? If your hero is a person who pursues godly change in a difficult world and pushes people in the direction of the cross, what does that say about you? What you aspire to becomes and reveals the condition of your heart. I mean, if you aspire to just get as much material stuff together, all that really does is is exposes the consumeristic condition of your heart. If you aspire to use words to tear people down and destroy people, that just actually shows how destructive the nature of your heart is. Because the Bible says this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Maybe we should think about that. Your Twitter feed and your Facebook... That is a great representation of the condition of your soul. Ouch. Yeah. Listen to the description of the culture in which these heroes were thriving. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. That every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Wow. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Let me be so bold as to say a hero thug in a world of thuggery is still a thug. And God's grieving over his creation because they used this beautiful gift of choice to choose evil. And apparently they chose evil repeatedly over and over and over and over again. Does this cultural picture sound familiar to anybody else in the room? Let me break it down for you. If you read Genesis chapter 6, you start about verse 11 and you go for the next couple of verses, the Bible breaks out how this culture was actually operating. The Bible tells us this culture was defined by sexual perversion. So this group of people just said, forget God's template. We don't give a rip about God's standard or his boundaries. This culture said, I do what I want with who I want, when I want, because I can, and because I idolize my own sexual desire above what God wants. There was no morality at all. It was basically a sexual free-for-all. That's how the Bible describes it. This culture was defined by pervasive wickedness. It's not my words. That's actually God's description of that. Where this culture, every person was doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. Everybody just got to pick. Whatever you want to do, good for you. No problem. As long as it works for you. Does that sound familiar? As long as it works for you, not that big of a deal. So every person's doing what's right in their own eyes. Have you noticed that human beings tend to be fairly selfish when it comes to what they want to do? Like, I don't know about you, but I want to look after me. And so this wickedness, as the Bible calls it, says there's a a lack of a moral and ethical compass. And it wasn't just in little pockets here and there. It was pervasive. It was everywhere. It's a tough world. The Bible also says there was widespread corruption. I mean, just that definition of, of corruption. It's ungodly hierarchies that are pursuing dishonest gain through violence and intimidation. Humanity at this point in history was defining itself by who got to the top of the pile and who could stay there. 
that sound familiar to anybody else? And finally, this culture was defined by violence. I mean, the Bible cuts to the core of the human condition here and says it was this, only evil all the time. We're going to talk about that next week. And I'm going to tell you, if you have the guts and courage, you're going to need to kind of brace yourself for next week just a little bit because we're going to deal with one of the most difficult issues in Scripture. And that is how do we reconcile a loving God with the ultimate destruction of all of humanity? And I'm, I'm going to play my card right now. Should we focus on the fact that God decides to wipe out complete evil or should we focus on the miracle that God actually chose to save eight? Because apparently, evil was everywhere to the point where it broke God's heart. I, I read that little phrase, only evil all the time. And you know what I started doing? I kind of went analytical a little bit. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to share with Christ the King statistics on crime and rape and suicide and murder and human trafficking and theft. But then I realized something. I don't need to tell you what the statistics are because you watch the same news reports that I do. Here's what's amazing. Listen to God's response. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will wipe from, wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. There is no statement in Scripture where God says, except for the Nephilim, because they're just amazing. They're awesome. They're great guys. I mean, of all the thugs, they're the best thugs on the face of the planet. That's not said anywhere. All you hear is God regret pretty dark. What's the point? Church, here's the issue. Just a basic issue and we all face it every day. The issue in this culture was the conscious choosing of the ungodly over the godly. They just chose the ungodly every single day, every opportunity. They chose everything that God didn't stand for. They just went the opposite direction because they actually believed they were smarter than God. This is where pride is the fall of every single person if we choose to go that way. Okay, we're done. Have a nice weekend. Hope you guys are great. Thanks for coming to church. I hope that you're encouraged and uh, be warm and well-fed. Enjoy the 80-degree weather. What I love about my Bible is that for every dark and difficult moment, there's this beautiful call for godliness and grace. Now, I've got to fast forward all the way to the New Testament for this one. But God says in response to everybody who has to make a choice this week, and you're going to have to make a choice this week. I've got to make choices this week. I've got to choose between an ungodly response, and I'll tell you what, I'm naturally prone to ungodly responses. You take too long in the coffee line in front of me in the drive-thru, I will murder you in my brain in an instant. I'm naturally prone, and I know you don't want to admit it, but so are you. We all think what we shouldn't think. We all do what we shouldn't do. We're so much like Paul in the book of Romans, the evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, what a wretched human being I am. We are all gone that direction. And yet God keeps calling us out and saying, look, if you really want to be my son, if you really want to be my daughter, just choose the godly. Choose patience in the coffee line. Choose a loving response when you get delayed. Don't see people as interruptions, see them as opportunities. Live under the blanket of grace every single day. 
and see whether or not this beautiful thing called joy doesn't just invade your life. So God says in response to that, these words. Let me just read some scripture to you. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. If Christ is in you, then even though your body's subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body because of the Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. God says every day you get to choose between life and death, godly and ungodly. Choose life and godliness and see what happens to you and the world around you. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have been covered continuously and perpetually by God's grace. And that gives us the opportunity every day to push the ungodly aside and choose godliness. How do we do that? We're obedient to what Scripture says. We don't go the way of the Nephilim. We don't build a reputation on our own because a thug is still a thug. Instead, we choose a different path. Christ the King, let's just work on this one this week. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Mm. I ain't going to say that again. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. For the next seven days, try it and see if it works. But only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. That, may benefit, that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Just get rid of the garbage. And what do you replace it with? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I'll tell you what, if you are obedient to those words this week, that makes you my hero. I'll stand with you in any fight, anywhere, anytime. Because that's what God calls us to do in the midst of a culture that's just fallen apart at the seams. We are called to be lightning rods for God's grace. Here's what I love about the Bible. In the middle of all this talk about Nephilim and, and sin and, and disgust and all this gross stuff, there's this, little, there's this little shining light. Verse number eight. So in the midst of all this stuff, God's got regret. He's like, why did I make these people? Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You know what that is? That's the definition of a hero. Who are your heroes, Christ the King? People who live an extravagant lifestyle and you just wish you could be kind of like them? Or quiet, humble, faithful people who are making a difference in the community exactly where God placed them? Just looked at a list of heroes, quiet, 
prayerful, wise, faithful, great families, deep friendships, humility. I can tell you, every one of my heroes I'm blessed to know. Let me tell you about two of them. Pastor Bob, Bob Dunlop, never pastored a church over 500 people. Best pastor in the world, in my experience. Loving, kind. Who else would give a 13-year-old kid a shot at preaching? Bob saw something. I don't know what. Pastor Bob is quiet, humble. He has the best laugh on the planet. He has faithfully loved his wife through Alzheimer's and dementia. Margie can still play the piano. Bob still sings at the top of his lungs. He just sent an email because he saw some of the wedding pictures to let Laurel know that we, he was praying for us. I mean, he has been a faithful, constant presence in my life. He will never be famous until we get to heaven and then I want a ticket to his parade because they will line up by the thousands and I'll say the same thing. Pastor Bob taught me how to love my Bible. He taught me how to pray. He taught me how to be faithful. Pastor Jim Scobie, my first senior pastor when I became a youth pastor, Emmanuel Evangelical Free Church, Steinbach, Manitoba. Jim's never going to have a, a, a famous platform, but I'll tell you what, I want to punch my ticket when he gets his parade in heaven because it's going to be incredible. The first Sunday I was at Emmanuel as the youth pastor, I saw, some, I saw high school kids line up to hug Jim goodbye for the week. I want to be like that. I also want to preach with a Scottish accent, just like he does, because it makes you sound so much more godly when you talk like that. <laughs> he sounds like an angel, not like a Nephilim. <laughs> Do me a favor. If you have a, a hero in your life, tell them. Tell them why they matter. If you need to pick a hero, Christ the King, pick Jesus. Now, it won't make any sense because people are like, why in the world do you idolize, <laughs> loose term, a homeless, itinerant Jewish rabbi? Why would you take your whole life and push it in that direction? For one reason. Because his grace and sacrifice covered my garbage. And he did it willfully, and he did it honestly, and he did it earnestly, and he did it not just for me, but for everybody else in this room. You need a hero? Go no further than Jesus. He's the best you can do. So, that's all I got for Genesis 6. So, I think theory number three, but I don't know. I'm not sure the heroes here are exactly heroes. But when I get through all the way to the end of Genesis 6, here's one thing I do know. In the midst of darkness, the sons and the daughters of God have an opportunity to shine very brightly this week. So be careful whose hero you become. Be careful what kind of hero you choose. And be the light that God created you to be. I think we should close by praying to our hero, Jesus, that would just make sense. Would you stand with me?
Father God, I pray in Jesus' name that today, instead of aspiring to be giants in a broken culture, that instead we would aspire to be quiet, humble people of prayer that live our faith each and every day. Not so that we might be famous, but so that you might be famous. Jesus, you are our hero, not just because you are the God of all creation, but because you are the God of all grace. God, thank you for a picture of Noah. I know we're going we're gonna to see his humanity in the next couple of weeks, and that will be somewhat tragic, but Lord, his obedience is awe-inspiring to me. So God, today... May we not get wrapped up in a, in a debate over who the sons of God really were, but instead, may we simply be content to be the sons and daughters of the Most High God. May we be renowned because of our love for Jesus. And may we be in awe of a God who chooses to save eight so that we might have the opportunity to be here and worship you today. So God, thank you for Genesis 6. It's confusing. It's difficult. But Lord, it's there for a reason. We thank you for being our hero today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen. If you need prayer for anything today, there'll be people up front. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the sun.